I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about recent grants and arguments, John Roberts' new job, and Fourth Circuit Judge Harvey Wilkinson joins us. So a quick update from a listener before we get into the SCOTUS News of the Week. Last week, we mentioned John Roberts using the phrase, OK, Boomer, during oral argument, and we weren't sure if he is, in fact, a boomer. Well, a dedicated listener reached out to us to inform us that, yes, John Roberts is a boomer. He was born in 1955, which puts him squarely in the middle of the post-World War II baby boom. And the chief's birthday is actually coming up. It's January 27th. So here's wishing him a happy early birthday. And it's a big one. It's his 65th birthday, which means he'll be eligible for Medicare. And that sounds pretty boomer to me. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on, uh, the court granted cert in six cases since our last episode, and they're consolidated, so it'll be three additional oral arguments. Yeah. So first up, the court granted Ford Motor Company versus Montana 8th District Court and a similar consolidated case. So this case is about personal jurisdiction. I could stop there because that's a boring topic, but an important one. So I'll describe the case. So in 2015, a Montana resident was driving her Ford Explorer in Montana. The tread on one of her tires separated. She lost control, rolled in the ditch and unfortunately died. The representative of her estate then sued Ford in Montana State Court for design defect and negligence. Now, Ford is headquartered in Michigan and incorporated in Delaware. Uh, So Ford tried to get the suit dismissed in Montana State Court, arguing that there was no link between the lawsuit and anything that Ford had done in Montana that would support specific personal jurisdiction over Ford on those claims. State Court disagreed, said, you know, it was good enough. But under the Supreme Court's decision in Burger King, state courts can exercise specific personal jurisdiction over a non-resident defendant only when the plaintiff's claims, quote, arise out of or relate to the defendant's forum activities. So the question presented here is whether the arise out of or relate to requirement is met when none of the defendant's forum contacts cause the plaintiff's claims. And a shout out to friend of the podcast, Sean Murata. He's been on a couple of times, and uh, I believe he's representing Ford in uh, in the case. Yes, he was the counsel of record, um, and he is one of the ten people on this earth who thinks that personal jurisdiction is super interesting. <laughs> um, so I'm very happy for him and that he gets to argue this nerdy case. Moving on, the court granted Chiafolo. I have no versus idea. Washington and Colorado Department of State versus BACA. These two cases deal with a state's ability to control how presidential electors in the Electoral College vote and what to do about faithless electors. So in most states, presidential electors are selected by the political parties and then the electors for the party whose candidates uh, for president and vice president win the popular vote. They're supposed to go on and vote for those candidates. Uh, a few states have different setups, but I won't get into that. Throughout history, there have been roughly 150 instances of an elector who voted contrary to his or her pledge. So there are two consolidated cases. The first is out of Washington, uh, where there's a regulation that says an elector who casts a ballot for a person other than the candidate who was nominated by that elector's party may be fined up to $1,000. So in the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine won the popular vote in Washington, but a handful of the Democratic electors voted for other people, and they were subsequently fined. 
This ended up going to the Washington Supreme Court, which ruled that states can direct how electors perform their duties after appointment and that, quote, presidential electors were understood to be instruments for expressing the will of those who selected them, not independent agents authorized to exercise their own judgment. Then there's the second case out of Colorado. So Colorado requires electors to take an oath to cast their ballots for the candidate who won the popular vote. One elector uh, attempted to cast a ballot for John Kasich. He was replaced by an alternate. And this led to a dispute that ended up before the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled that the Constitution gives electors discretion to cast a ballot and states can't control how they vote. So the, the Colorado case also raises the issue of whether an elector who was prevented from casting his ballot has standing to sue the state. Is there a constitutionally protected right at stake? So the, the electors argue that states lack the power to legally enforce how an elector casts his ballot, and it violates Article Two of the Constitution as well as the First Amendment and the Twelfth Amendment. So certainly a timely issue to take up in a presidential election year. And finally, the Little Sisters of the Poor are back at SCOTUS for the 10,000th time. Um, they are some feisty nuns. <laughs> they definitely are. <laughs> so as everyone knows, the Little Sisters won their case at the Supreme Court in uh, 2016, I believe, after the Obama administration tried to force them to provide contraception to their employees, which is, of course, against the teachings of the Catholic Church. And the nuns in good conscience can't facilitate its use. So in 2017, the Trump administration issued a new rule which protected religious objectors from the contraception mandate. Uh, but Pennsylvania and a few other states sued to block that rule. The Little Sisters intervened in the case, but the district court ruled against them, entering a nationwide injunction um, and the third against the rule and the Third Circuit affirmed. So there are two questions in these cases. The first is whether the federal government was allowed to exempt religious objectors from the mandate. Um, and the second is whether the Little Sisters had standing to appeal the decision in validating that rule. And that issue arises from the fact that the Little Sisters intervened in the case. They weren't an original party. And they were already protected by an injunction from a different court. So we'll be closely watching uh, this case once again. And this is, a, this is a Beckett case as well. They're pretty busy at the court this term. They, they definitely are. Uh, so moving on, the, the court heard three oral arguments this week. And we're going to talk about Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. Tiffany previewed this last week, uh, but now the justices have heard oral argument. And this is the case out of Montana where the legislature set up a, a tax credit program where taxpayers could donate to a scholarship granting organization that would then uh, give scholarships out to underprivileged kids to use those dollars at private schools. And then the taxpayers would get a modest credit of up to $150 per year. Originally, the families that received these funds were allowed to use them at any qualified private school. And then the the state said, well, we have this no aid provision in our constitution uh, that says we can't give any state funds in aid of sectarian organizations such as religious schools. So parents sued. This went to uh, the Montana Supreme Court, which decided to strike down the program in its entirety so that scholarship funds would not be able to be used at secular or religious schools. So now it is at the Supreme Court. And uh, I just want to highlight a couple of the exchanges from the oral argument. So one, right out of the gate, Justice uh, Justice Ginsburg asked about standing. Do the parents have, uh, are they the appropriate party to bring this lawsuit in the first place? You know, she she suggested that, you know, maybe it should be 
uh, the religious schools or the taxpayers. And Dick Comer uh, from the Institute for Justice, he represents the parents. He said that, you know, the parents were the beneficiaries of the scholarship program. The Trump administration had divided argument time um, with the parents. And so the principal deputy solicitor general, Jeff Wall, he argued on behalf of the federal government. And he said, you know, that taking away the scholarship funds is a clear injury to the parents uh, and they're being penalized for their free exercise. It's not the school's free exercise. And he had a great line. He said, everybody concedes that if all the parents in this program had wanted to choose secular schools, there would be no basis for the state court's ruling. Uh, So the the scholarship program would still exist at that point. A couple of other exchanges uh, that that came up, Justice Sotomayor asked if um, a ruling for the parents would mean that uh, this would force states to fund religious schools, which I don't think anybody's arguing that in the case. And this was something that Justice Breyer was also really caught up on, you know, saying, well, are we going to have to have equal funding for public schools and mm-hmm. and religious schools going forward? But the attorney for the parents, Dick Comer, explained that, look, it's up to states to decide if they want to have a program like this. They, they can implement, you know, voucher programs, other school choice initiatives. But once they set those up, they can't discriminate between religious and non-religious institutions or or individuals who want to use those funds. The issue of Blaine amendments came up, and these are named for a senator from the 1800s who tried to get a federal amendment to the federal constitution to prohibit public funds from aiding religious uh, sectarian schools, as he called them. And that failed, but a number of states ended up implementing them on their own. And Uh, The history of Blaine Amendments and their uh, sort of anti-Catholic bias came up a number of times at the argument. And Justice Alito had a great line where, uh, you know, the lawyer representing Montana said, you know, there there was no religious discrimination at play here. And, you know, there are perfectly legitimate reasons for our state's Blaine Amendment. And, you know, Justice Alito pointed out that states enacted these uh, when a wave of Irish Catholic immigrants were pouring into the country during the the potato famine. And he said, do you really want to argue that the Blaine Amendments had nothing to do with uh, discrimination based on religion? And Alito had some really some really incisive questions throughout throughout the argument. But Justice Gorsuch didn't have a lot to say. He asked some questions about standing, but he was pretty quiet otherwise. Uh, the chief who had been up late the night before uh, at the impeachment trial, he he was there and, you know, uh, seemed happy to be back in his home court. Um, but we expect a ruling in this case by the end of June. Yeah. Well, speaking of the chief, somebody needs to get that man some coffee. He's been pulling double duty this week with Supreme Court arguments in the morning and then presiding over President Trump's impeachment trial into the wee hours of the next morning. Yeah, I think the first night it was going until like 2 a.m. or something like that. I cut out far before it ended. Oh, I had been asleep for hours at that point. But so far, it seems like he's following the model of his his former boss, uh, William Rehnquist, who presided over President Clinton's impeachment trial. Rehnquist later would go on to say that I did nothing in particular, and I did it very well. (laughs) That's great. Um, And the chief swore in the senators last week before the trial got underway. And the only other headline-making action so far is when he admonished the House managers and the president's defense team, saying that they need to, quote, remember that they're addressing the world's greatest deliberative body and that they must avoid using language that is, quote, not conducive to civil discourse. This was after some heated remarks by... Representative Jerry Nadler, one of the House managers, and White House counsel Pat Cipollone. My favorite part, though, was when he gave the example of a former impeachment trial where someone used the word pettifogger (laughs) and the presiding judge uh, said that was out of order. 
which was very funny. And so I know there were some Twitter exchanges about the meaning of pettifogger. Please illuminate me. I don't know. Yeah. So apparently this is drawn from a law professor at Columbia, Kellen Funk. If you want to go look up his Twitter, he did this whole long thing. It was like he lived for the moment the chief (laughs) justice used this archaic word so he could spout off all his knowledge about the topic. So ultimately... Uh, the word developed to mean a low-class lawyer who manipulated procedure and used every tactic to squeeze out a fee. Um, I think that's a great word, and we should definitely bring it back. And I would 100% support that being used in some context. In everyday parlance. Yes, and in the impeachment proceedings. I think that's great. <laughs> well, so far, John Roberts, you know, he, he's been playing mostly a ceremonial role, just kind of sitting up there and um, you know, but I loved that uh, that he had to sort of take take both sides to task for their their heated rhetoric, and it, it sort of seemed like a you know a school teacher uh, kind of scolding a couple of kids <laughs> in class. Peak chief. Yeah. Moving on, I recently spoke with Judge Wilkinson. J. Harvey Wilkinson is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Wilkinson. I'm delighted to be here. So let's start with your early career. While you were in law school, you took a break to run for Congress. Now, you didn't end up winning that race, although I'd say your career turned out all right. What did you learn from that experience? Well, I did it as a chance to get an education. And and, um, I was just 25 years old at the time, and I barely scraped by the minimum age. And way back then, we were in the... um, business of trying to build the Republican Party in Virginia because it was dominated by the Democrats. And um, so we contested every office, and I got the Republican nomination. But um, as you pointed out, I I lost in the um, general election. But I I really did it partly just as an education. And and I felt like um, I had grown up in a very sheltered existence, and that I was sort of meeting people just like me and with many of the same back, much the same background and experience as myself. And I said, there's a whole big wide world out there that I need to, to um, sample and taste and learn about. And um, running, getting into politics and running a race for Congress was one of the best ways to do that because I would give maybe, um, hold maybe six or seven meetings, teas, speeches, et cetera, a day, and uh, just meet all kinds of people from all kinds of professions and walks of life and in very different circumstances. So I just, I just learned a great deal. Now, it was a bit of a difficult climb for me because I, partly my age and my <laughs> opponent, who was a three-term incumbent, had a his father had held the office of Congress and the rest, so it was tough. But he had a slogan which proved to be very effective, and it said, Satterfield back to Congress and Wilkinson back to law school. <laughs> um, it's tough to run against that. So um, after the votes came in, I was talking the next day with television commentator, and he said, well, um, how do you interpret the results of an election, of the election? And I said, well, I think I received a big mandate. And um, he, he looked at me in utter shock. And he said, a mandate? 
Sure, I said a mandate to complete my legal education. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so am I glad I did it? Um, yes. I was devastated at the time because you run for an office and you lose, and it's like there's a feeling of personal rejection. Mm-hmm. You get over that in time, and when I had time to reflect on it, I thought, well, it was, you know, it's a good thing that door closed, maybe, because another door opened. And I pretty much committed myself to pursue a career in law. And I've been very, very happy about it. And if I'd won the race for Congress, you know, I don't know that I would have gone in that direction. So sometimes things that look very bad at the time work out for the best. So, of course, then you returned to law school. And following law school, you clerked for Justice Lewis Powell, who had been a longtime family friend uh, when he was first appointed to the Supreme Court. So tell me a bit about Justice Powell. Well, I was just so happy when that happened. I I had interviewed with Justice Stewart and White and everything, but my my heart was hoping that Lewis Powell, Justice Powell, would get on the bench and learn so much from him. For one thing, on all the times I've known him, he never raised his voice. And I've never seen him raise his voice in anger. That's a really hard thing to do over a long period of time, but it befits it befits a judge. And the other thing is he was able to um, empathize with people whose circumstances were quite different from his own. He was a case like a Plyler v. Doe. It was a 5-4 case, and it was a very controversial decision. But um, Justice Powell had, had no experience with undocumented aliens in, in, in Texas, but he was able to put, put himself in that in 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 their shoes. And um so along with the, the legal question, which is whether there was that kind of right anywhere in the Constitution, there was always an element of empathy in his in his uh, judgment and an ability to identify people quite different from himself. Um he had an extraordinary work ethic. Uh, he worked uh, um, seven days a week, and if I took off Sunday um, to uh, see the young woman I was dating at the time, I'd come back Monday, and in the seat of my chair um, were uh, memorandum and que- memoranda and queries and everything which let me know to my embarrassment that he'd been working all day Sunday. <laughs> so he he was in his mid-60s and I was in my mid-20s. And I was the one working five or six days a week, really. And he was the one working seven. Kind of embarrassing, <laughs> but um, it was a... Uh, it was it was wonderful because we we were so close and sometimes in the evening um I'd go I drove to and from work uh with him every day and then in the evening I would sometimes come back and have dinner with him with the justice and Mrs. Powell and and um after those dinners we we'd uh, go out on the balcony of his apartment and it was in southwest Washington, um, Harbor Square, not too far from the Potomac. 
And we just talk about anything and watch the planes glide in over the river and into um, National Airport. And um, sometimes Humphrey would really give a monologue about his days as Johnson's vice president and his days as a presidential candidate. And he would go go on for about an hour. (laughs) But it was fascinating for me. Um, to learn about those times from his perspective. And he and the justice were quite different in their outlook. But they were really fast friends. And he was a, um, he was a wonderful, warm, and, and, um, and generous man. So the, this told me that, you know, you could love your political and philosophical adversary. That's a great lesson uh, to, to learn. So then after teaching law, working at a newspaper, and serving in government, President Ronald Reagan appointed you to the Fourth Circuit in 1984. So tell me about some of the highlights of your time on the bench. The highlights of, are simply the personal relationships that I formed with my great colleagues and with my law clerks. It's a monastic existence in some ways, but then again, not really, because you have these warm personal relationships with your colleagues and with your law clerks. And so that is very sustaining, and that has to qualify as a highlight. So now you have a reputation for being a feeder judge, sending many of your clerks off to the Supreme Court. So tell me, what's your secret? Well, (laughs) I think all of us, in a way, um, we operate a recruitment and placement uh, uh, operation. <laughs> and um, I spend a lot of time trying to recruit good clerks um, and spend a lot of time making decisions about clerks. Um, in many ways, the most important decisions I make during the year. And then I spend a lot of time um, trying to place clerks uh, in a in a um, in a position where they would 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 be happy. Obviously, there are ethical constraints, and I never lean on anybody. But <laughs> I feel perfectly happy to respond to queries about my um, my clerks, and I try to put the wind at their back. You mm-hmm. know, everybody's uh, the sailboat goes back when the go, goes best when the wind is at when the wind is at your back, and and so I try to. Uh, uh, start the clerks and 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 launch them wide um, into what might be their their career and maybe that's a Supreme Court clerkship but I've I've had a lot of clerks that didn't get a Supreme Court clerkship and they've done just magnificently I try to maintain my credibility with each and every justice I'm very conscious of the fact that if I recommend some somebody. And that uh, and that person doesn't work out. That that's a disservice that, to the justice, and it's a disservice to the Supreme Court. I uh, feel the same way about my clerks as I do about my children. Do what makes you happy. Uh, sometimes the clerks have, you know, gone on to this Supreme Court clerkships and 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 beyond and. Others have gone on to academic positions, and others have become judges themselves, and 
Others have gone into private practice, and others have gone into government, and some have gone into business, and some have become writers, and and um, a lot of them, I'm pleased to say, have become wonderful spouses and parents. And I'm just happy with whatever makes whatever makes them happy, and um, I think it's important to communicate to, to clerks and and children that you know it's not up. To me, I don't have any sense that you should follow in any kind of uh, path that I followed. Um, you have to strike out on your own and and do what you love and do what makes you happy and do what makes your heart sing. Because when you get up in the morning, um, you will look forward to the day rather than than dreading it. So as you mentioned, your clerks have gone on to impressive careers. Uh, some have become judges. Uh, one even married your daughter. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't expect that. I thought he was coming to clerk. <laughs> he had other designs for his clerkship? <laughs> he had else on his mind, I suppose. <laughs> well, one can say he was well vetted. <laughs> now, did they, did they already know each other before the clerkship? No, they didn't. And... It was funny because you know, he would give her a ride up to Washington and the rest, and I just thought, you know, he's that Jeff. He is such a nice person, and <laughs> you know, giving uh, Porter a ride up to Washington um, when she didn't have a ride, I I just thought it was a <laughs> a friendship, and and finally, um, you know, I he he brought a a pumpkin by her um, house one Halloween when she was a little down. And the pumpkin had this bright smile, and and I, and I called I called a friend and I said, you know that Jeff, he's he's a wonderful person. I, I have to tell you what he did. He <laughs> bought Porter a pumpkin for um, Halloween, and he said, what an what a lovely act of friendship. My and the fellow I was talking to said. Jay, how clueless can you be? <laughs> it says, guys don't just hand, around, hand out pumpkins <laughs> out of pure friendship. And, of course, he was right, and, you know, I was the last one to be clued in. But it was, <laughs> it was just um, a lovely thing that had happened, and I'm um, awfully glad it did, and, and terms of what my clerks take away from uh, from my chambers, what I really hope is that they take away, first of all, the idea that we're one, one big family and that they may not be sons and, and daughters, but they're the next best thing, which is <laughs> nieces and nephews. And we really are family. And that's one I hope we'll continue to be family. And and the other thing I try to impress upon them is just, you know, there's only there's, there's one thing that really matters in life, which is that you try to, it's not easy to do every day, but you try to make the lives of people who cross your path a little bit happier in some way for having run across you or or spent or spent time with you. I mean, the whole thing for me is, do you add or do you subtract from mm-hmm. the happiness of other people? And that's not a strictly legal lesson, but that's 
you know, that's really what I want to convey. Well, that's wonderful. Now, I've I've heard about enjoying aspic with Judge Jones and going shooting with Judge Thapar. So what sort of things do you like to do with your clerks? <laughs> well, you know, I did nothing that's really quite that dramatic. I used to go running with my clerks all the time, but my knees have uh, slowed me a little bit down on that. I enjoy doing with my clerks is just appreciating ordinariness. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you mean by that? It would be one of my favorite books is uh, Thornton Wilder's Our Town. And the beauty of that book is that he goes into Grover's Corner, New Hampshire, and he, he... explores the day-to-day life of that little town. And so much of the lesson of that wonderful book is that this doesn't last, life doesn't last forever, and that the way to do it is to savor each day. Um, So that's what I do, and and I'm not an absentee judge. Uh, we, I, I spend a lot of time with my clerks. One of the debates we have is which of six or seven restaurants do you prefer in the immediate vicinity of the courthouse? So I think it's important for the meaning of the experience not to be an absentee judge, but to, to uh, really spend time with these good folks, but if I can appreciate, if I can teach people to really just savor ordinary moments, just find your meaning in routine, then I don't necessarily have to take them to Mount Rushmore or or do something dramatic like that. I just think appreciating little things, appreciating small moments, appreciating Appreciating ordinariness is, um, that's, that's what I like to pass on. So now your home chambers are in Charlottesville, and you also spe- yeah. spend a fair amount of time in Richmond, where the Fourth Circuit often sits. Now, I spent a summer working in Richmond, and I loved walking around the, the historic Capitol grounds and going to Buzz and Ned's for barbecue. Uh, and I think, of course, anyone who's been to Charlottesville probably knows Bodo's Bagels. But what are your favorite spots in Richmond and Charlottesville? In Charlottesville, I, I like to look out of my window in my chambers at the Blue Ridge Mountains. And that's my favorite spot for me because the Blue Ridge, it is the mountain range. It's so different from the Rockies or the the Southwest. And it's a sort of mellow, rolling, rolling mountain range that gives Mm -hmm. you a sense of quiet and peace and perspective. And then the um, historical meaning in Charlottesville and Richmond uh, it's tremendous for me. I love to visit. I mean, visit Monticello all the time, and mm-hmm. uh, went to uh, participated in naturalization ceremonies there. And I, I go to Montpelier National Lawn and hike the trails at Monticello, um, which means a lot to me. And uh, 
culturally, I, uh, you know, I mean, I love UVA sports. I love the, I love to walk around the university and look at the rotunda. I love going to uh, uh, to concerts in Richmond. I love visiting the John Marshall House. Um, I um, I love visiting the Virginia Museum and the Virginia Historical Society. And so these two places have meant so much to me, and it's just an unending series of delights. You know, they always say that Virginia is the northernmost of the southern states and the southernmost of the northern states. And I think that expresses a lot of what appeals to me is that you get, you know, some of the best of the northeast and some of the best of the of the south. Mm-hmm. And so all come in, you know, they, 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 there's this conflux of all these wonderful regional influences that come to rest in Virginia and specifically in in Richmond and Charlottesville. So it's a happy, happy place to to, uh, spend a life, and it's a wonderful place, I might add, to raise children, uh, Richmond and Charlottesville. Um, uh, My my grandchild is very happy being there. Our children love growing up in Charlottesville, so I, I have just nothing... But good things to say about these two places, they mean the world to me. So now, do you have anything in your chambers that reflects your personality or your family? Yeah, I, 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 there's one thing in particular. Um, and I don't put, I, I, don't, I don't have my chambers. I don't put a lot of famous people in my chambers. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose it's, it's nice if somebody prefers it to have a, picture of themselves shaking hands with this or that president or whatever, but the pictures I want are pictures of my clerks. Mm -hmm. And so in our reception area, each clerk has given me a a framed picture with a little gold plate with their name and their years. And this lets me go every day and just look over those pictures. They're, you know, about 130-some law clerks now that have clerked here. And I love looking at those pictures and just bringing them, um, bringing their years with me back um, to mind. And it's also nice because when visitors come by the chambers, they'll look at those pictures of the clerks and say, oh, I didn't know so-and-so clerked (laughs) here. And then sometimes they'll say, oh, really? So-and-so clerked here? Will you show me where they clerked? They want to see the exact office <laughs> of it that, that they that that they held and and um, everything. I said, Judge, I, I said I didn't know all these. You had all these former clerks, and I said, Yeah. And my my um my great hope among many is that they'll one day be too important to return my phone calls. <laughs> and, and they, then we all get a big, a big chuckle out of that. But it's wonderful when the clerks come back, mm-hmm. look at their pictures on the wall in my chambers, and they'll they'll start to blush. I say, "What are you What are you giggling about? What are you What are you laughing about?" And they'll say, "Well, I can't believe I was ever that young." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so. It's been a wonderful, it's been a wonderful connector, really. I'm very, very happy to have done that. And those, it's the pictures of those clerks, honestly, that reflects my 
my personality. So 130 plus clerks. Do you have reunions with your with your former clerks? There are many reunions. We had a big 30th reunion. I haven't had them on a, a regular basis, but mm-hmm. I sometimes feel that every uh, the, the week doesn't go by that a, a clerk or two doesn't visit the chambers or that they don't call or that they, that they're not in Charlottesville, so I I keep in touch with them mm-hmm. that uh, that way. Um, I probably have a fortieth reunion when when that day arrives. But to tell you the truth, reunions are now getting so big that they're more complicated to plan than weddings. <laughs> and I'm going to have to have you have a talk about a wedding coordinator. You know, I don't have to have a reunion coordinator. <laughs> Sounds like my, um, For my 40th reunion, and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to do, but when you think about it, the clerk's families come through, and they they bring their spouses, and then they bring their children, who are the grand clerks. <laughs> so we sort of make provisions for them. Uh, you know, I, I hope. Hope I don't have to hold it, hold something like like this eventually in the John Paul Jones Arena. <laughs> 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 it's a it's a wonderful thing this whole clerking and a, and a, uh, this whole clerking business because where else in government do you, young people have a chance to make um, make an impact and uh, mm-hmm. of this of this nature and um, you know this is this fact that they have served the government and uh, uh, these clerks have served the government in a very, very responsible capacity. This is something nobody could ever take away from them. It's something that they can always look back on with with pride and say, you know, I I served the government of the United States in a in a in a capacity that really meant something. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right, now I have one final question, something I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Two different people for very different reasons. Obviously, Justice Powell is first and foremost in my heart. But one justice I'd like to talk about is talk with is Justice Harlan, uh, the second Justice Harlan. Mm-hmm. I think he was just a pure embodiment of the law. And, you know, this is such a partisan and polarized times, horribly so in the political branches, but, you know, too much so in the courts. And um, Justice John Harlan, you know, he was above and beyond that. He was just a lawyer's lawyer and a judge's judge. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he, he, he was just pure in his, in his love of the law. And that was his, that was his, his guidepost. And, you know, I, I think it would be very gratifying to talk to him for that reason. And also because he was such a wonderful craftsman. Um, he was a, he was a beautiful writer. Um, he was a man of great humility. 
he embodied the idea of, of law as a craft. And he had a very distinguished background in private practice. And I'd want to talk to him about about that and what was the best background for, for judging and what how did he how did he learn to, to write and craft such beautiful products? So I'd love to talk with Justice Harlan. Mm-hmm. Another justice I'd like to talk with, and this for a different, very different reason. I like to talk to him because I disagreed with him in so much, and but I still liked him a lot. But when we were when I was clerking, um, Justice Brennan made an effort to learn all of our names, and so I got to know him, not well by any means, but but very cordially. Mm-hmm. I certainly liked him a great deal, but I disagreed with him so, so much. And I <laughs> think it would be a very lively conversation to just have a debate over Favy Noya and, and the expansion, huge expansion of of uh, collateral attacks that it has unleashed and the historical foundation of it. And I would love to just talk with him and saying, how could you do this? What's the <laughs> rationale for it? And then I would put forth my opposing view and and we'd have a good go at it. <laughs> and uh, I'd love to talk to him for that reason. Well, those both sound like great conversations. And Judge, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much. and. I really appreciate our conversation very much. We'll wrap up with Supreme Trivia Impeachment Edition. We've got some good questions for you today, Elizabeth. I hope you're ready. Um, thanks to our intern, Nyla, again. Not my intern, Elizabeth's intern. Um, She's the SCOTUS 101 intern. Yes, so. for uh, <laughs> coming up with these. Okay. Bring Are you on. ready? Yes. Number one, how many federal judges have been impeached? Oh, uh it's like 15 or 20. Yeah, that's right. It's 15, oh. um, which is actually oh. higher than I expected. Now, number two, how many of those were convicted? Not all of them. Correct. I'm going to say 12. Pretty close. So eight mm-hmm. were convicted, four were acquitted, um, and three resigned before mm. they could either be convicted or acquitted. The first impeachment trial of a federal judge, which took place in 1804, drew controversy for failing to meet the standards of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, do you know who it was, and do you know what he was charged with? It was old Bacon Face, right? Chase? Bacon Face? <laughs> Justice Chase? No. Wasn't he called old Bacon Face? He would get bright red when he would give speeches, and he, he was impeached, uh, or there was an impeachment effort because people thought he was uh, too partisan. Okay. So it well, wasn't him? No. Okay. The first impeachment <laughs> of federal judge was Judge John Pickering of the District Court of the District of New Hampshire. He was nominated by George Washington. Uh, President Thomas Jefferson made the case that Pickering's conduct um, after mental deterioration, that he allegedly made unlawful rulings and that they were enough to constitute an impeachable offense. Uh, He then called for the House to impeach Pickering after Pickering refused to resign. And officially, Pickering was impeached on charges of mental instability and intoxication on the bench and was convicted and removed from office. Many say that partisan politics was the motivation behind this impeachment, given that Pickering was a Federalist whose rulings were at odds with Jefferson's Democratic-Republican politics. 
seems like a tactic Jefferson would go for. (laughs) Okay, number four. Who is the only Supreme Court justice to ever have been impeached? Um, Oh, who was it? Uh, Okay, well, I I think there was a maybe one leading up to the Civil War. It was Samuel Chase. Oh, it was the other Chase. (laughs) Yes, and uh, but he was not removed from office. So only three of the eight articles of impeachment got a, a majority vote for guilty, but none of the eight received the requisite two-thirds majority Wait, hold on. for removal. Samuel Chase was impeached. Yes. And then he went on to be the presiding officer of Johnson's impeachment? No, that was Salmon P. Chase. Oh. Yes. Getting the chases confused. Oh, oh, so that's old bacon face. That must <laughs> Yeah, full circle. Oh, okay. <laughs> Were they related? They must have been. Yeah, they must Salmon have been. Sam and Samuel. I don't know. We'll we'll look it up and we'll have an update next next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um next. Who was the last federal judge to be impeached or what decade? Because you probably don't know his name. Uh was it in two thousand ten? It was. Because my colleague, Tom Jipping, was in the Senate. Uh, he worked in the Senate at the time, and he was the chief counsel for the impeachment uh, oh, trial. I did not know that. That's yes, fascinating. but I don't know his name. Yes, so his name is Thomas Porteous, and he was a federal district court judge in the Eastern District of Louisiana. He was um, appointed by President Clinton, then impeached in 2010, and he was impeached for accepting bribes, committing perjury, oh, and other judicial misconduct. Oh, he had the money in the freezer, right? He was hiding money in the freezer or something like that? <laughs> I, I think that was him, yeah. <laughs> Which, having lived in Louisiana for a year, does not surprise me. <laughs> Got a couple more, because these are All right, keep them coming. These are great. Yeah. So, the Constitution calls for the Chief Justice to preside over the impeachment trial of presidents. Why is it the Chief Justice rather than another official? Why is it the chief justice? Well, typically it would just be for other impeachments. It's just whoever is the president of the Senate, mm-hmm. which would be the vice president. Yes. And it would be kind of unseemly for the vice president to preside over the impeachment of his boss, which could result in his elevation, his promotion. Yeah, that's exactly that's right. That's it? That's not oh. even – I'm not even going to read – my answer, because that's it. Huh, um, yes, and scholars also say, additionally, that the chief justice, as the presiding officer, is supposed to emphasize the solemnity of the event. It's, it's very solemn. Very solemn. Yes, very yes. solemn. Very sober. Yes. Um, okay, final question. This chief justice's robe from the impeachment trial, which he presided over, now sits in the Smithsonian. It's William Rehnquist. It is. Because he had the, the yellow stripes. Mm-hmm, exactly. And... I didn't know this. He received a tax deduction for donating it to the museum, which is really funny. <laughs> it's like, did you pay for it in the first place? I don't know. Do judges have to pay for their own robes? They I think, might. I think they do. I think I, I have read that somewhere, but perhaps we'll have a, an episode where the trivia is focused on, you know, judicial clothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, I'll note that Justice Roberts has adorned a more traditional all-black robe, which is also peak chief. He would never do anything to draw Stand any out. attention to himself. No no special hat or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's it. You did a great job. Those were very, very informative and, and a lot of fun. So uh, great job to, to our intern, Nyla, for finding those. 
Well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.